0: And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Elizabeth Blake is an assistant professor of English at Clark University who specializes in gender and sexuality studies, food studies, and global modernist literature. Her research focuses on the ways queer pleasure is represented in literature of the early 20th century.
1: Can I start with like a big question that is just because I feel like it's like something that I have that I have tried to like read or teach myself, but like, what is modernism? Like, how would you right? Like, how would you how would you describe it to like someone who was like, yeah, it's just new stuff? Like, what would you how would you describe it?
2: So, modernism is actually a pretty contested term. This is a real question that yeah. scholars <laughs> engage with all the time, um, and the quick and easy answer is. Well, there is no quick and easy answer. There are a couple of versions of how you might answer this question. And one is primarily literature that was produced between the two world wars. But that's not really sufficient. Um, another answer would be literature that's part of a movement that flourished in Europe and also America that's invested in certain forms of formal experimentation, Um fragmentation, a movement away from linear narrative, and a movement toward a new understanding of the individual Um, that's away from kind of 19th century conceptions of what the novel does, which is a somewhat didactic genre in a lot of ways right in the 19th century part of what the novel is trying to teach us is how to be a person well and how to be a good person and how to be a socially appropriate person <laughs> yes. and so I would say that part of what's interesting to me at least about literature that falls under the broad outline of modernism is that it's interested not in prescribing some version of personhood but in thinking about what people are and how they're encountering each other and how that's maybe not something we can actually control in the ways that 19th century literature would suggest we might want to
0: I always think of the mark of modernism in my studies as the armory show where they had the first the ready-made so it was like a urinal that somebody had said this is art and everyone said wait a second you know (laughs) Um, But to take something that we're familiar with and look at it through a new lens and then that inspired poets like Wallace Stevens and William Carlos Williams. But that's what I always think of as the start of the modernist era. And that's the start of the modernist era in America. Right, that's right, modernism
2: right. coming to the U.S. and really shocking audiences here. But it's it germinates earlier than that in Europe. Obviously, they need something to show at the Armory Show. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but yeah, absolutely good answer. Would like the buildings, buildings Roman fall into that category? The buildings Roman
2: is exists in the 19th century as well. Um, it shifts. over the course of literary history and takes lots of different forms. I'm thinking of like James Joyce. Yes, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. And that's, so part of what differentiates his version of it is that it's stylistically and thematically so wildly different than what comes before. And he's really specifically thinking about life in Dublin as this kind of fragmented experience in which you run into people there are all these unexpected connections it's incorporating all kinds of materials and it's a very different conception of what it means to be a person and how you're incorporating information So one of the things that Joyce does, and stop me if I start getting luxury. No, we love it. (laughs) One of the things Joyce does that's really interesting is he includes a lot of observational content that's really not about something that's chosen by kind of a rational subject, but about what appeals, what catches your eye. I mean if you're in this room right now, you're looking around at a lot of titles, right? There are a <laughs> yeah. lot of books on the wall, and it's really hard not to look at those and to think, oh, maybe we should be talking about that. Maybe that's there. And that's a kind of thing that Joyce incorporates that earlier novelists don't necessarily incorporate, that kind of irrational, inescapable human urge.
0: That's a very Virginia wolf urgency, too yes, right yeah, so yeah, you're sucked into multiple perspectives and stream of consciousness. Now I know you've written a lot about her use of food in mm-hmm. her her writing. Can you talk about um, how eating is used as a site of queerness and what that means to you?
2: Yeah, so wolf is interesting because most people who have talked about wolf and food have talked about, her as someone who experiences deprivation who may have had what we would now call an eating disorder but in a lot of ways it seems like she actually enjoyed food quite a bit and she writes about it with a real sense of pleasure and when I talk about queerness in scenes of eating in literature obviously this is a whole book project so I'm not going to be able to explain all of it here today um okay got all afternoon here we go But what I'm interested in is something that's not exactly homosexuality, right? It includes and incorporates that, but it's also about a kind of resistance. It's about the kind of stance that queer has taken on, right? Queer was originally used as a kind of umbrella term that would accommodate more non-normative sexualities than just gay or lesbian or bisexual. That would mean something a little more flexible, a little more open and capacious. But it's also become a kind of stance of resistance. It's become a political term. So when I use it, and this is in keeping with most people working in contemporary queer theory, I think of it as both something that's about forms of pleasure that we're not supposed to have unexpected forms of pleasure and a kind of resistance to norms involved in embracing those forms of pleasure. So it's saying, here's a thing I'm not supposed to like, but I like it. And that liking is important because it unsettles all of our existing understandings of what it means to like something. And in modernist literature, this often, this unsettling of norms around food goes along with, in parallel to or in combination with, unsettling of norms around sexuality. So it's not exactly just sexuality, but it's sexuality and more. So it opens up a set of questions about what can feel good or what can taste good.
0: One of the things I saw you reference to when you were talking about this subject was the middle brow. And that was something I had never heard before Mm -hmm like, what is a middle-brow writer? And then you had mentioned that the the early 20th century middle-brow writers were using food to signify pleasure as well. Mm-hmm. Is Virginia Woolf a middle-brow writer? Virginia Woolf is not a middle-brow writer. Um
2: though Virginia is the person who coins the term middlebrow, conveniently. Um, and she coins it in response to an ongoing public debate in which she is being called over and over again a highbrow. Oh so she God. coins the term in an essay that is is—it's framed as a letter to the editor of a newspaper, which she never sent, and the essay wasn't published until much later. Um, and she begins with this sort of performative performance of highbrowness where she says that she's writing because of a review of her work in which the writer neglected to call her a highbrow, right? So she's taking this all from a very satiric distance and she sets up this tripartite structure which is a really specifically classed structure between the highbrow, the middle brow, and the lowbrow and it's pretty historically specific. I Sometimes when I teach about this, try to think of examples in the contemporary moment. And it's not always easy to come up with legible examples because these categories are much more complicated and fluid now in our modern media landscape. But we might think of the highbrow as like a group of New York poets and the middlebrow as sort of medium bestsellers and the lowbrow as... Books you can buy at the grocery store. That's the very simplified version of it. Which is wild
0: because the lowbrow is the most financially successful type of writer. The way to go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. James Um, Patterson. Yeah. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Yes. Clive Cussler. Yeah. So the lowbrow circulates the most. The middlebrow circulates sort of the second most, and the highbrow is very small, but also is generally what gets taught. In colleges and universities, and even middle schools and high schools, mm-hmm. right? As a librarian, you must yeah. think about this in terms of what people have access to. So she describes this system that becomes kind of a, a broad shorthand for how the literary field is structured and often becomes something that authorizes kinds of snobbery, right? Mm-hmm. The middle brow is often quite demonized for its aspiration to being part of the highbrow.
0: Gotcha.
2: And it's, it's also a feminized genre. The middle brow is mostly women's writing at this period in history. And it's women's writing that follows up on the traditions of the 19th century novel. So it's fiction about women's lives. It's what's often called now domestic fiction in large part. But it's also mystery novels it's all the kinds of things that have a kind of for lack of a better word escapist quality
1: the true crime yeah which is now even beyond so far beyond just like literature it used to be like you would buy true crime books and now it's true crime everything right yeah the podcast might be a middle-brow genre actually yeah i would
2: believe that yeah that's a big claim i'm making but
1: i'll buy it it, that's the fluidity you know
0: conversational informational yeah so accessible yeah. to everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Free. Yeah.
1: And it's democratic. Feminist. It's feminist. It's Yeah. Absolutely. Like, you know, women make up the
0: primary audience for that. Yeah. I know in your work, too, you've talked about cookbooks as, like, yes. a vehicle for talking about broader cultural issues. What have you discovered? And what sort of cookbooks are you examining? Are <laughs> they, like, from the early 20th century? Or are, are they more recent? Talkless?
1: Yes. I read your essay on that. <laughs>
0: That's was, so great. And then I got really, because
1: I started, I was like, I should look into this. And then I got really <laughs> into it. But yes,
2: I thought that that was really interesting. The Alice B. Chocolates cookbook is amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to find. It's a little bit out of print. Um, most of my copies I've actually gotten at yard sales
0: no, what is the context? Is this like a touch point I should know about? So
2: Alice B. Toklas was Gertrude Stein's longtime partner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and was sort of treated as like her wife in a way that carried all kinds of associations you can imagine. But she, after Stein died, she wrote a cookbook. She wrote this cookbook that's primarily famous because it has a recipe in it for hash brownies. <laughs> oh nice um and it's a very it's a weird document it's very gossipy very name droppy very middle brow um it's also arguably the first celebrity cookbook written by a person who wasn't famous for being
1: a chef I can't prove that claim but I'm
2: pretty convinced that sounds
1: accurate yeah it also I mean hash brownies that's like way ahead of its time
2: <laughs> oh yeah right? she's very cool <laughs> And she's gossiping about all of the famous modernists, all of these highbrow figures in this very middlebrow genre. And I'm interested in cookbooks in part because they're a space where women talk to each other. And it was such a feminized space. And it was such a complicated, discursive space. Women introduce recipes. And there's this kind of conversation that goes on around them, especially in early cookbooks. But even now, like, if you read cooking blogs... What's the first thing?
1: Like, like a whole thing, oh. and then you
0: scroll down, and you're like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, like, all right, your grandma just made the kitchen. kitchen. I know, I, I know. Wanted, yeah. <laughs> I just want to get to it. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so, I'm interested in that kind of paratextual material and what happens there, as well as in the form of recipes themselves, yeah. which are I often really interesting.
1: Read Chrissy Teigen's cookbook mm. as like a book. Yeah. I mean, it's a cookbook, and it's like, like. I think it was the first book I ever bought, too, because, like, I'm a real grown-up, and I was like, this famous woman. I like her. So I bought it, because it also just sounded like there was going to be good food in it, but, like, Mm -hmm. she does that. And it's not, you know, anything too, too long, but you can read it sort of as she tells stories, and she talks a lot about her mother and her upbringing, and it is, in that way, a piece of literature, I guess, guess from that lens.
0: This Mm -hmm. is kind of the crux where your work is so interesting, because... Mm -hmm. I immediately thought of like Ruth Reichel, who was the yeah. you know the she's amazing food columnist for the L.A. Times and the New York Times, and she was the editor of Gourmet magazine. But she wasn't a classically trained chef or anything, and yet she writes all these cookbooks. Mm-hmm. But she's still in that food realm. A lot of the writing that you're exploring is food in literature that's not about food, mm-hmm. right? Mm. So when you think about food and contemporary literature literature, or food writers now, do you have any like vision for the future about how we might use food as a vehicle as like for currently practicing writers?
2: Mm-hmm. And so I do teach some contemporary literature. I actually teach, now that you're thinking about Alice Toklas, you should read Monique Trong's Book of Salt. Um, yeah. Okay. yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, and I teach that in my food and literature class. But it's it's really, it's not food writing in the traditional sense, but it's about Stein and Toklas and about, it's sort of from the point of view of a Vietnamese cook that they employed. And it's, it's a great novel.
1: Everyone's going to listen to this episode and then like, come back home and there's the like 10 books. Yeah, I'm like, I
0: gotta go find these books. <laughs> go to the library, the Worcester um, Public Library. I don't library. know, maybe don't go to the library like right now. Oh, truly. Yeah. We can Wait, do a I'll little, come we'll do a little check-in on coronavirus yeah. at the end. Order
2: yes. online from your favorite local bookstore. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah, but as far as food writing, I, don't, I mean, I actually think one of the most interesting pieces of food writing I've seen lately was not, it was a comic in the new yorker that was about cooking under quarantine during coronavirus um, and showed people using sort of pantry ingredients but making these incredibly complicated dishes and doing so and then sending pictures to their friends thinking about it as a performance and as a way to engage and i think one of the questions that the food writing has before it now is what is the meal like as a social occasion? We've thought a lot in the past few years about sort of culinary history and culinary appropriation and what it means for foods to become popular that have been previously denigrated. And I'm really interested in this question of the meal. Actually, one of my... One of my absolute favorite, all time favorite pieces of food writing is this piece by Katie Weaver when she uh, was writing for Gawker. Yes. When Did she was here Fridays.
1: It's the greatest <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> she ate, thir- is it 36? Yeah, oh, Or thirty. the all you can she eat. Ate, yeah, yes. she ate like at least. Around 30 mozzarella sticks. It's such an amazing
0: <laughs> It is. It's it, funny. Molly passed that along to me. You two was was like, have similar
1: tastes.
2: Yes. It's both like the funniest oh. thing I've ever read in my life. It is. And actually a really interesting meditation on what it is to be human <laughs> or
1: slowly well, feel she... that you're not
2: human anymore. Yes.
1: And she, right. Because she was having like her senses, like she mm-hmm. ate four mozzarella sticks, immediately regretted it because her tongue felt awful. But then it was also, she. one of the rules of her day was that she couldn't go on Wi-Fi. Right. So she had to just, like, interact with the world around her, which was, like, T.J. Friday's for, like, 11 or 12 hours. Oh, my Lord. It was unbelievable.
2: <laughs> and she develops these relationships with the staff. At one point, she plays the game on the back of the ketchup bottle, yeah. which is a kind of abjection that is
1: astounding. It's it's <laughs> such a good piece of writing. But like, T.J. Friday's is... Low brow f- yes. food. Right? Yeah. But then it's like you I mean, I think Gawker would be, like, a good middle brow, we could say, right? Like, they were gossip, but they were also, like, writing groundbreaking stories. Yeah. And then this came along.
0: Well, even, um, you mentioned the New Yorker, but Helen Rosner, who writes for them right now as their food correspondent, she's writing about, like, MSG and why have we vilified Mm -hmm. it. She loves MSG and Mm -hmm. loves to cook with it. Mm -hmm. And that was, for me, a really interesting crux also where they were, like, Let's take all of the ugly, delicious, which is what David David Chang calls it, and help the world to fall in love with it.
2: Yeah, I think those are important questions. We talk about MSG in my class. Do you? And it's interesting because it's such a historical phenomenon, we all, I suspect, lived through a moment when everyone was afraid of MSG yeah. and everyone was saying it's really bad. It's worse than like regular salt. It's gonna yeah. kill you. It gives gonna you a headache. Make it right, makes
0: yeah. your stomach. Ache-
2: and it was a very racist moment. Yeah. But students who are a little bit younger, students who are 18, don't quite so much remember that, but know that there's something about MSG. Because there right. were these signs at Asian
1: restaurants
0: yes, that exactly. said, no, no MSG, MSG here. here. I
1: want MSG. Here.
0: I know. <laughs> I'm like, can I have it? That's why I love it's David delicious. Ching, too. He brought in a bunch of people, and he's like, well, do you like Doritos? And they were yeah. all like, yep, yeah. And he's like, well, that's more MSG than absolutely. any Chinese food that you're eating. Yeah. I was
1: thinking earlier when you were talking about like enjoying the thing that maybe you're not supposed to, like I just love Funyuns like more than anything <laughs> they're my favorite snack I love them and it's this idea because some people are like are you eating Funyuns and I'm like yeah I am because <laughs> they taste good and they're super crunchy mm. but it is it's that idea that like you know stuff is gross I mm. guess but is it I don't know
2: no I joke sometimes that like The contemporary version of my work would be like an extended defense of the comic book strip character, Kathy, and her constant (laughs) desire for chocolate.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Garfield and lasagna. Yeah. So what is some of your favorite food? And then have you had a chance to explore Worcester at all in terms of what sort of culinary landscape we have to offer here? Um, I've only been here since August, so I feel like I should
2: be asking you where I should eat. Uh, so probably the meal I eat the most often in Worcester is the spinach and cheese pinwheel from Banans. I because love this. it. it's yeah. a super delicious lunch and it's on my way to work and I never regret it or get tired of it. But I've been pretty impressed so far with the restaurants in Worcester. I know it's not technically in Worcester, but I really love Udupi and Shrewsbury.
0: I have not I have been. driven by it so it's many
2: amazing. times. Alright, we'll add it yeah. to the list. It's all vegetarian and it's extraordinary like
0: super flavorful, right super delicious. And she's a vegetarian, so I was trying to think of uh, some places like Fatimas. Um Fatimas. I haven't been the there yet, awesome. but it's on my list. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then Dead Horse Hill is so great about the hospitality experience, where you can go in and say, "Look, I'm a vegetarian," and they'll be like, "Oh, we're gonna make you something. Here's Kick what we'll yeah, here's mm-hmm. what we'll get for you." Great, yes. I should
2: do that. I love Volturno. Yes. I love Volturno too. Two
0: for one Monday, Tuesday. Yes.
2: <laughs> I teach my food class until nine Tuesday nights, mm-hmm. and then often just go straight to Volturno. You Free.
0: must be so hungry. So hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
2: I have a couple students in that class who cook for the class, which is amazing. I have one student who's a
1: very accomplished baker. Yeah? Who cooks for us almost every time. Are they self-taught? Yeah. That's amazing. And that kind of goes back to, like, food as that social experience, though. Mm -hmm. Like, you're sharing this class experience, and then you're communally sort of bringing in that, the eating, Mm -hmm. the food.
2: When I teach classes on food, people always ask if I cook for the students, and I say, oh, no. <laughs> but I almost always have one or two students who want to cook for the rest of the class, and I love that.
1: Has anyone ever cooked anything that was like a real conversation piece? Anything kind of like out of, oh. out of the box?
2: Okay, so not to talk about the election, but you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but last time around, um, I was teaching a food class and we talked a little bit about the history of the Women's Day Cookie Contest. Do you know about this? No. I don't. Okay, so. it's want to. It's, <laughs> it's really something. Women's Day magazine during the first Bill Clinton election after Hillary made a comment about how she was you remember this I
1: learned about it in college cuz <laughs> yes. I studied political communication in what college was her you comment? keep going no you keep going yeah.
2: <laughs> she said I'm something like I'm not the kind of wife who's just going to stay home and bake cookies mm-hmm. for which she was vilified and so Women's Day magazine had a cooking contest between the two first lady candidates And it has almost always actually accurately predicted the outcome of the election, bizarrely. It's wild. wild. The whole thing feels very retrograde. Yes, it's
1: weird.
2: (laughs) Um, And it was particularly bizarre when the two women baking for it were, in fact, not women, but were Melania and Bill Clinton.
0: Oh, oh right yeah. so that's right
2: this class then Bill Clinton submitted the recipe Hillary had submitted oh come on which that's really felt yeah, yeah. like a cop out <laughs> um, but I had a student who baked them
0: oh cool. yeah, really? yeah made
2: both and we, we did the testing class
1: well what one was better
2: uh, our in class test did not accurately depict the outcome of the election uh, yeah
1: that is interesting, though. Well,
0: it's it reminds... probably wishful thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so.
1: It reminds me of those stories that you hear about, like, women writing men's, like, books or, like, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, like, in um the movie in Big Eyes for so the artist who did all those paintings and her husband was like, these are my paintings. That's Bill. Oh, these are yeah. my These, these are, are my cookies. cookies. I made them. Yeah. From yeah. 1992. Yeah.
0: Well, I was wondering if you could give us a snapshot of where you come from and how you found your path to Worcester. Oh, wow. Um,
2: Well, I didn't grow up very far away. Um, I grew up in Maine. And so actually, funny story. My mother has a master's degree in English from Clark. No. Yeah. Small world. She's obviously very happy that I'm here. (laughs) Um, and I've lived all over, I got very far away for college, lived in Oregon, lived in Chicago, lived in New York, and I've sort of just been gradually moving my way closer to New England. Um, I did major in English in college and then I took some time off and worked in marketing and I've done all kinds of things before realizing that I really just wanted to be back in school. Um, and Yeah. It's been a pretty good journey, and I'm really happy to be here, and hopefully to settle here. Yeah,
1: Clark is a great place. Specifically, mm-hmm. Worcester is fine. <laughs> we love, Worcester. we love Worcester. Like Worcester. It is. It's a great place.
0: Clark makes people fall in love with Worcester. Yes, and that absolutely. means a lot. Being from here, you know, you yeah, know, l- you like when someone's in your corner. Yeah. yeah, I
1: think Clark, maybe even more so than other.
0: To a degree, like beyond,
1: I think, other Mm -hmm. schools. And I don't know if it's like the location or this, like the philosophy of this, like, place, but campus is definitely open to the community. Yeah, Yeah. and it's very community oriented as far as I think, like, programming goes too. Mm
0: And I did want to check in. We all work at schools. You work at a private (laughs) college. Molly works at a suburban elementary school, and I work at an urban middle school. How are each of our institutions dealing with coronavirus, and how are you feeling personally? I am just concerned about, like, other people at this point,
1: right? Like, my concern is, like—and it's funny because I thought of, like, one— Just, like, in my more immediate circle, I thought of, like, one person that I was, like, would be concerned about. But then, like, as time went on, I was, like, oh, my God, there are so many Mm -hmm. that I could think of. Um, I will say that last night, it was awful. I was, like, oh, well, my grandparents are dead. So, it's, you know, like, it was terrible, though. And then your cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, like, spiraled last night. Because well, because last night was crazy. So like this, this will be last week at the time. Right, because so we're taping
0: this on oh my Thursday, God. March 12th. within fifteen
1: minutes. Last night, the president made a bunch of incorrect uh, assertions at a press conference about the whole situation. Tom Hanks on his twitter was like hey guess what me and rita got it
0: but we're fine (laughs) they're in australia so calm and i'm like that's good well that he's speaking in such a calm and forthright manner and
1: some people actually have speculated that part of the reason that he like immediately came out and talked about it was that he wants people to be serious about it Mm -hmm. which i would believe about tom hanks right like he's like the altruist like he's Mm -hmm. like no we have to tell them. Yeah. Um. And then the NBA canceled the rest of their season. So
0: that for me was the most jarring because I that's thought huge. that's big business. These people are yeah. successful in part because they they value greed is the wrong word, but they value money yeah. above it's all a biz- else. Right. It's yeah. a it's a lar- It's one of the biggest businesses in the country, sports. So for them to turn away from potential revenue for me was a little scary. Yeah, you know? that was yeah. crazy.
1: Absolutely. Um, and they. And the reason that they canceled the season is that a player tested positive. He, Rudy Gobert has coronavirus, and he, I mean, between someone made a, like a graphic basically saying like within the last however many days, they have, like Utah has played this team, who's played this team, who's played this team, and it just goes and goes and goes. And um, Charles Pierce, Charlie Pierce, wrote a piece that said I had forgotten about the ball it was, it was all about how, oh, cause they're right. like, well, they don't really come into contact with each but, other, but every single person, the whole entire point is to get like, come in contact the with the ball. ball as much as you and can. And
0: sweating. Yeah. Yep.
1: Um, but yeah, so that was crazy. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think sort of overnight, I think it started earlier in the week, but overnight it sort of started to feel a little scary. We had, um, planned for this week, my district was supposed to have like an, uh, a, professional development day tomorrow where all the adults were going to be in one building and they just canceled it um for uh, for reasons uh, lots of reasons obviously but yeah so they're just like nope no school for anyone
0: oh wow yeah
1: um it's just like or they postponed it rather but yeah um and it's interesting i thought that the i teach younger children like sarah Mm -hmm. said elementary schoolers and i really thought that they were going to be crazy Mm -hmm. and they're like okay like, right now.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: They're all right. I think the full moon had more of an effect on them than anything else. <laughs> like, I didn't hear, I haven't heard too, too much. I'm just thinking, I don't know as time goes on, but I don't, how are your kids in middle school?
0: The kids, I don't think, understand the scope quite uh, where they're like sharing chapsticks mm. and stuff and I'm like stop don't doing do that, that. go wash your hands done, yeah. don't do that anyway <laughs> but I think a lot of this for them is they're learning best practices that they can take with them for the rest of their life about mm. hygiene which is not a bad thing um I was not feeling like personally too anxious until last night when the president spoke and even his his tone in his address to the nation was more serious than I've ever experienced where I was like oh he's not making a joke he's not gloating This seems like perhaps he feels threatened, um, which is out of character for him. Well, I think, I mean, I wonder that if
1: he is super paranoid about it. Mm -hmm. And it seems at this point very likely that he's going to get it. It's Right. Just because of CPAC and just because of the way that things, the way that politicians like live their lives every single day. It's like they shake hands with people constantly. Um, But that's, yeah, yeah, it's crazy.
0: So in my city right now, I think that there's a lot of talk about how we can feed kids because there are so many of our students that get three meals a day through the school. Yep. And it looks like there are summer food service provisions in place where all summer long there are sites that these kids do go to to get the food. And so we'll be able to continue that if we have to take a little break, do a deep clean, let yeah. everyone quarantine. That's been um, like Chicago and Seattle have been dealing yeah. with that question But I just, I worry about kids who are hungry Mm -hmm. and then equal access too, where I would like to be able to reach all of my students remotely and continue our curriculum. So I want to make sure these kids have the devices and the access that they need at home. Absolutely. And for some kids, I mean, school is like a safe place too. Yeah.
2: That's something we're thinking about a lot as a residential institution is that there are people for whom going home is a financial hardship, but there are also people for whom going home
1: is... Absolutely, Like domestically and, and internationally. I mean, there's so many international
2: students. So many
0: international students. Yep. But maybe you explained something interesting about the schedule at Clark. All the other schools in the city have announced that they're keeping kids off campus, but that was easier for them.
2: Right. Because they mostly have not had spring break yet. Part of what's difficult for us is that we're already back from spring break. So for us to close down, which may end up being the only option... Requires asking people to travel, which I think we'd rather not do. So it's a little more complicated for us, and I think that's part of why we're in a different position than most of the other schools around here right now.
0: Absolutely. Huge international
2: enrollment, mm-hmm. too, here at Clark.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And just trying to find a way to make sure that students have the support they need. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously our first priority, educationally and personally. It's a huge financial impact for a lot of them that
0: we don't want them to have to suffer through. This is the first time, too, I've thought about how, I mean, we acknowledge our privilege all the time, but about how freely I go to restaurants and buy whatever food I want and eat at will. And I started to think like, oh, you know, I might have to exercise some moderation (laughs) in the future for a number of reasons if this continues. (laughs) Oh, no, Um, Molly. Allergies.
2: Um, (laughs) But also trying to be aware that that not going to restaurants impacts people's financial situations. I've been trying to just tip wildly whenever I do order
1: food, but that still feels like it's not enough. Um, mm-hmm. And some people have pointed out, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well, that like a situation like this, like a pandemic is really shining like it's a, it's a light on like societal issues, like the yeah, major absolutely. problems that these yeah. that these societies face where like now people are like, well, We should all have health (laughs) care because, you know, like stuff just in, but like beyond that, someone was like, oh, is a pandemic finally going to get like workers rights that they've been fighting for for years? Because all of these, like the Olive Garden, Trader Joe's and all of these different places now are finally instituting stuff like paid sick leave that they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been surreal too, though, like a very, it's a, I still feel like we're outside of it where we're looking Mm -hmm. and it's just, Mm -hmm. so it's been really crazy <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I don't remember feeling this threatened by something in a very long time yeah. but then I have to just keep reminding myself that you know like we're all doing okay right yeah. gonna yes. we're gonna get through whatever it's difficulties be we have are like they fall in comparison to what a lot of people deal with in their daily lives absolutely sure. yeah so well when can we expect your book oh yeah no question I'm gonna read it uh give me a couple of years
2: yeah but I do have some articles coming out soon awesome. so there's stuff Fabulous.
0: yeah Awesome. we'll link to your profile through Clark so that people can oh. find your work more easily but thank you for having us in your yeah, this office was lovely yeah.
2: yeah thank you this was so fun
0: awesome well I have been Sarah hey. I have been Molly and this is pop it, pop it. Hey.